Hello and welcome to Right Wing Dharma Squad's episode 40, continuing our discussion of Nagarjuna's Root Verses of the Middle Way. I am your host, Dharma Kirti, joined as always by the squad today, uh, consisting for now of just Aura, if you want to say hi. Hello. And we have uh, Yamnaya Mindset will be with us, we hope, very shortly. Um, so, yeah. Today is our what I we have decided to be the um, the penultimate episode. This is a word that gets thrown around uh, in our circles uh, with increasing frequency these days, which I um, <laughs> I just find hilarious because this was something that this is something if you ever studied Latin, this gets drilled in your head. Like the the penultimate syllable is where the emphasis lies, and you know the, the anyway all this kind of shit doesn't matter. Um, but yes, we um, you know we we love this text and we hope that you all love this text or have had, um, you know, some amount of um, encounter with it that has been helpful in some way or, or it sparked something. Uh, it certainly did for us. But, um, yeah, you know, we don't, it's also, you know, something that um, at a certain level just needs to be contemplated. So we, we will have one more episode on this text. But uh, then that will be it for the series. And of course, at the, you know, once we're done, any questions or you know, further discussion, we are definitely all ears, uh, very interested in, in conducting any kind of discussion. We have a Telegram group now, a discussion group on, um, on uh, Telegram, which is just right wing Dharma Squad, I think t.me or Telegram. I forget. Uh, I'll, I'll put, it, we'll put it in the show notes. But the, but the, <laughs> it, it's, it's right wing Dharma Squads on Telegram. Right wing, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, well, this is a great place if you want to have any philosophical discussion. But uh, in the meantime, why and we don't also we... have the, the, oh, please, yeah. the show Twitter, which is at Dharma yes. Squads on Twitter. At Dharma Squads so on Twitter. So, yeah, and that's separated from any of us. So and that'll just be for the show. So that should, theoretically should be able to stay up at least for, you know, some amount. And of time. DK, before we get into the text, I wonder if I could just put you on the spot for a minute. Yeah, we didn't we didn't discuss this ahead of time, but in our in our uh, group DM we were discussing, should we do, you know, should we take three more episodes, one more, two more, what? Um, and you made a comment about uh, the speeding through of the end. And I wondered <laughs> yeah, if you was, explain Yeah, what no, that it was just funny. I mean, it's kind of like... extrapolate for me because I don't really know... It's kind of like, about. you know, slash trad slash, in a way. Uh, the, the teaching, you know, it's, it's quite typical, almost universal at least in like certain spheres and i think anyone who has any experience with like tibetan stuff will be laughing as i say this i, I would imagine um you know w when you're receiving teachings on like some text right and the teaching is supposed to last like a day or a week or a month or whatever uh the the, the first whatever let's basically it's a Pareto principle kind of thing so it's like 80% of your time will be spent typically on the first 20% of the content and then like 20% of your time will be spent on the remaining 80% of the content so it's it's quite traditional at least you know in my experience um for like you know when it's when you're when they're teaching a text or you know especially this kind of philosophical material often you know the teachers will go off and they have there's such like you know they have such encyclopedic knowledge they're extremely learned so they'll just go about their own um you know go off from their own knowledge and relate anecdotes and solve very it's basically a chance for them often to just kind of extemporaneously riff on whatever um and then like you know um three three quarters of the time is spent on 
uh, on like a quarter of the material and a quarter of the time is spent on the remaining three quarters of the material or whatever. And it's, it's just always kind of funny to, you know, they're speeding through and, and, and you, you know, you end up often missing a lot. I, I had that in mind deliberately when we were, when we were doing this, um, I wanted to try to avoid that, but, uh, you know, at a certain level it becomes like, Oh, maybe that's why they do. It's also like with something like this, it's not that there aren't, there's some really great stuff in these, in these last few chapters, but you know, like with we kind of emphasize, we've said over you know several times, um, the basic argument is the same argument he's been making since chapter one, and so there is in a certain way a lot of repetition. It's just applying that same argument in just very very slightly different ways to different topics. Um, so there's that aspect to it as well. But you'll you'll see that in in settings where there isn't even that like. You know things that it's just like oh yeah well you know maybe like read this on your own he'll give you like a glo you know one word oh this means that okay next moving on and I just I just always found that really funny it is funny and the um, you know I think the mark of a good text is that even if you treat it that way um, you the the whole thing sort of pulls you inexorably towards the end and and is of a piece that whole way I I think I've mentioned it before, and I, I hope I don't sound like a hopeless normie midwit by mentioning him, but, you know, the software developer and um, entrepreneur uh, Naval Ravikant has, uh, you know, who's sort of a, a great source from well-meaning, but sometimes midwittery kind of <laughs> stuff on stuff. Although, not that he's not a smart guy, he clearly is. But anyway, he says uh, about reading, you know, he always loves to read, he encourages people to read, et cetera, et cetera. And he says, you know, if you're reading a book um, and you're, and you're not enjoying it like just put it down <laughs> like just pick up another book because there's so many yeah. other books to read you owe it to yourself but then the, the transverse of that um I, I was thinking about you know classes i've had where we've done the same thing and if you think of like the brothers karamazov for anybody who's read that you you can talk for so long about like the dialogues between ivan and alyosha and the, the sticky little green leaves in the spring and the Grand Inquisitor sequence with Father Zosima, and that's like the soul of the book. And this whole second half of the book almost is taking up with the trial of Dimitri, and it kind of drags on, but it pulls you on through it. And at the end, when they're saying like hurrah for Karamazov or whatever, it, it really hits you like a ton of bricks. But I just, it, we're getting way off topic from Nagarjuna right now, but I um, I, no, I liked your comment yeah. about that, and I, I, it, <laughs> I thank you for um, uh, expanding on that a little bit. Yeah, of course. No, it's just... It's funny. Anyway, um, yeah. So with that, it's um, we can maybe dive into the text um, for the second to last time. The um, the topic of, of so the idea the topic of chapter twenty one, which is where we left off. It says the an analysis of arising and dissolution of existence, and so this has to do with time, and it's basically again the same argument from before uh, that, well, like he says, a dissolution does not at all exist either with or without arising. Arising does not at all exist either with or without dissolution. So the, the basic point here is, um, again, when we're thinking about if, the basic point is when you're considering a phenomenon, right? You're, you're trying, like the, the, the you know, like I loved your, your metaphor from a few um, weeks back or when you're, it's like uh, the, the doom marine, you know, um, running down, we have all these like, uh, <laughs> yeah. like the guardian is like the marine, you know, running around killing all these demons, which are our concepts. And you, everywhere the demons are trying to hide, find somewhere 
you know, please, Nagarjuna, don't know. And then he takes the, the shotgun of reason and logic and just blows them away. Um, so this is just another instance of of that, right? Of of the um, this idea that whatever it is that we're trying to reify, um, reify means make into a thing. Make into like hypostasize is another word that gets thrown around in these contexts. Sometimes it means basically we we have some kind of a mental construct, right? There's some some like elaborate concept we've constructed in our minds and and we're trying to find some way to apply that onto our experience because we want for various reasons for our concept because because concepts are um comforting in a way they're they're like if if you this is the kind they're of like visual yeah it, it's it's they're useful in fact i mean again it, it's not that you know this this is like the there's a kind of like a like a tinge of blue pill or like the kind of tinge of like reality not i wouldn't even say reality just like where the kind of like you know so so when we when we do this thing you know we, we talk in these circles right often about like uh um heuristics right and and you know pe- people have this um sense where where uh you know the, and it's true like like the 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 the, the, the left wing line so to speak is oh you have to treat everyone as individual and someone's race doesn't you can't necessarily tell anything from their race you know we have to treat everyone as an individual we have to pretend that there's these you know and like obviously that's really dumb right that's that's not only dumb that's that's actively harmful to your um like health if you like if you go around like bicycling in neighborhoods that you shouldn't be bicycling around and you're going to get very seriously hurt or killed because you're a fucking retard don't do that okay at the same time it remains the case that like if you want to look at things from an absolute level and i'm not suggesting that the leftists actually do this i i think they're sort of playing this rhetorical game of pretending that they do or or sort of invoking this reality without actually understanding what's going on at a deeper level and and willfully ignoring the usefulness of the conceptual kind of fiction that you can group everything together but the point is like yes in an absolute sense right like a probability of 0.001 or like you know arbitrarily many zeros in between isn't the same thing as impossible right so there's never like if you want to deal in absolutes like that's not you know it's not going to be that's not how that's not how things work like basically but the point is um at, at a certain level it remains the case that like you have your concept in your mind of like you know certain racial groups are more you know they they're more inclined towards violence and crime than others like that is a probability that is not an absolute statement of fact it can be useful it's more useful than ignoring that reality at the same time it it's not the case that it, it's you know you, you're going to find exceptions what does it mean that you're going to find exceptions is that you know this this concept that we have in our minds only has a certain kind of limited utility. The danger isn't so much in thinking that it has um, only a limited utility. The danger from Nagarjuna's perspective or this kind of like what he's trying to get at is if you reify this concept, if you make it into, if you if you think that because things tend to work a certain way that we can like, you know, uh, habitually construct this thing and, and that it's therefore going to be, you know, um, a guide to like the you know reality that, that, that we don't have to worry about it ever being contradicted or something that's when you get into trouble that's when you get into problems is when you think of your concepts as something that have the, like ontological existence outside of your mind because they don't 
they don't and that's that's the problem here so, so this is the the issue that's going on here is basically and, and again and maybe this is helping clarify or bring it all together now that we're approaching the end it's it's that you you want to avoid the trap of thinking that your concepts like as useful as they may be in which they are in fact necessary for just ordinary existence in the world if you're interested in more than just you know ordinary existence in the world and, and even if you are like at a certain level you know even if if you only are interested in ordinary existence in the world if you're interested in in no longer suffering right because the the fundamental point here is it's our it's our habit our deeply ingrained from beginning as lifetimes our habit to conceptualize that is responsible ultimately at a certain level for us suffering that's what brings us suffering so if we want to break that habit sorry well, yeah uh, well, let me finish the thought uh, i'm curious to hear what you have to say if you want to break that habit you want to break that that cycle we have to stop conceptualizing we have to stop thinking in terms of like our, our things having a real independent existence and and one of the like most sophisticated ways which is why it's towards the end that we would do that is we conceptualize things in terms of like okay well if everything is really instantaneous right if, if, if every phenomenon you know every individual particular like particle or whatever is you know only exists for like the instant that it exists and it, like it arises and ceases in a single instant and all this like you can talk in that way in a certain way and maybe that's a kind of a certain in a certain way that's a better description than other kinds of descriptions we could make about for example things being permanent however the key point is even that like doesn't it does it fail because it's a concept because it's like a story we're telling about stuff it doesn't really work if you analyze it sorry that was long but i i just want to throw that out. i'm curious to hear what y'all have to say oh no i mean that's very true like concepts are i mean absolutely necessary for just day-to-day -day existence i mean say something like the law of non-contradiction if you want to do any kind of just you know analysis of what appears before us and just to make decisions it's absolutely necessary but when you really break it down and look at it and are really wondering what's going on, it becomes less and less tenable. And these concepts become a bit more, um, well, it becomes pretty clear that they're just provisional or useful, but not really reality as it actually is. When I drew breath uh, suddenly in the middle of your, your um, what you were saying there, Dharmakirti, uh, it's because I, I wanted to agree wholeheartedly with what you're saying about like what you know what is the importance of seeing through these these kinds of concepts and stuff like why is Nagarjuna's project even a worthwhile project and it comes back to the fundamental question of all Buddhism which is suffering and the end of suffering and it is in you know we have useful concepts that can be either you know probabilistically true like the ones you were talking about or ones that seem more sort of true according to the laws of physics, like, you know, the sun will rise in the east tomorrow and not in the west. Um, the, whether it's those kinds of concepts or some of these more arcane and subtle concepts, um, especially the arcane and subtle concepts, like the idea of arising and passing away, the very concept of time and things like that, it's because you cling to them, you cling to concepts. And ultimately, of course, the project is is to do away with the clinging to the sense of the self. Um, and uh, it, it, that clinging in, in Buddhism, and again, I, I say this sometimes, I, I would just assert in reality, uh, that clinging is what causes suffering. And, and so seeing through all of these, um, these ways in which we construct these, um, these mental 
really construct mental constructs. It's a, it's a circular way of putting it, but really actually it's a circular phenomenon, right? Because the whole point of this is that these things exist within on a certain level of reality that, that does make sense and is useful, but ultimately has no true thing, no true self, or as Nagarjuna and the Mahayanas would put it, no true Dharma at all. Uh, that you can actually point to and call that a thing. And so therefore, they don't really have any reality. Um, and so to cling to them is going to cause suffering. Um, that's I just wanted to highlight that point you made. And oh, no. and, 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 it's yes. just also a point that, uh, you know, it, right view is the first uh, um, thing listed in the Noble Eightfold Path. And usually that's interpreted to be Talking about uh, believe, you know, um, understanding the, the law of karma that your um, actions have consequences and, and that kind of thing. Um, but it, I, I would also assert that it, it just means a right view that, or I'll put it this way: having wrong view is going to, you're going to have a bad time, I guess. And wrong view would include clinging to thoughts, concepts, and ideas. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's all what. It's all about the mind. the The basis is the mind. You know, the basis of purification is the mind. The agent of purification is the mind. The uh, you know, what purifies is the mind. What is purified is the mind. Um, very important to to understand this. Um, and and what is the impurity that's purified? You know, th there's different. I don't want to say that it's all conceptuality necessarily. I don't actually think that I mean I think there's a certain kind of like there's there's things that are wrong besides concepts or you can think about like what is the where is the tendency to conceptualize come from coming from Pe people get I got caught up on this I should say when when I first started you know studying this stuff it, it, it you, you tend to we, we don't really necessarily have a super very super well-developed vocabulary I think in Western philosophy like we, we use there's a word that gets thrown around sometimes uh, discursive meaning like of or related to discourse um, and uh, similar kinds of words, you know, even the word concept and so on. And, and, and some of these things are, are okay, but, but I, in my experience, compared to the vocabulary and the, the depth of analysis that you find in the Buddhist philosophical tradition, that's it, really, um, the words we have are quite clunky. They're not necessarily well-defined and, and, and it, it can be hard to like really understand what's going on. And so you're like, well, what is a concept? And maybe that's a topic for another show. My, my point is just, you know, it, don't think of a concept. Of, I mean, it, it is also a concept definitely is like, you know, we, this, uh, uh, you know, think of an apple and like, I guess, you know, some people can um, uh, some, you know, some people, I, I certainly have no trouble thinking of like a red, you know, like an object that's an apple from memory. I guess some people have difficulty with this. I, I don't really know what that is like, uh, but but even then they can sort of have a linguistic concept maybe of like, you know, what is an apple like? And they have certain words associated with it. That That is definitely true. There is that kind of conceptualization that is maybe like the most, um, I don't know, I wouldn't say the, that is, that is like kind of like the most, uh, that's a very easy way to understand concepts, right? It's a little bit more difficult to understand like, in a certain sense, what Nagarjuna is getting at when we're talking about like, so, so with the stuff about arising and ceasing, right? Maybe we'll connect this to the text and we'll make it a little bit more vivid. 
So he says um, in, in, in verse 19 of this, of this 21st chapter, he says, If the first moment of the new state of being were produced when the last moment of the old state of being were ceasing, what was ceasing would be one thing and what was being born would be another. So, so okay. So I'm looking at uh, you know my 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 mobile phone. Okay, I'm just you can't see me looking at it, because, uh, but but I'm looking at it, right? Or you can look at yours or whatever. Okay. So, at a subatomic level, right? Even just think about forget like the kind of matter particle or yeah, think about like the electricity, right? Think about the electrons. This is this phone is working because there's electrons that are that are flowing through it, right? So every instant at very very close to the speed of light these electrons particles at a first approximation particles are like moving very close to the speed of light through in a certain region of space and um, this object that I'm that I'm looking at right I am I like if I want to analyze it in 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 ultimate terms or in terms of you know like what's What's really going on in the kind of complete description? A, 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 a you could even call it a scientific description. You, you know, I mean, it, it's not. It's certainly what contemporary science would have to say about it at a certain level. If you really want to get dig into like the physics of it, um, th this object is changing moment by moment by moment by moment. And, and if you want to call it, if you want to say in a certain, you know, describe it as changing moment by moment by moment, every single instant it is changing. It does not appear to me. To be changing, right? I, in my like deluded, ignorant, dumbass self, like my cognition, my mind is not sophisticated. Like, so, you know, Buddhas don't have this problem. I have this problem. So I am looking at this at this object, and it appears to me as though it is a single, solid, stable object that is persistent through time. That is wrong. That is like a that is an error that my mind is making. I'm not like consciously. I'm not like thinking phone, 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 phone every second. I mean, you could say maybe again, like at a certain level, you could describe it in those terms if you really. I maybe do it's that. helpful. Yeah, sure. Well, no, you can't. I mean, and, and that's not an uncommon kind of like medit. If you're, you know, there's a there's a kind of meditation where you're like focusing on a no, simple I was object. Just joking. Oh yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm just, just saying like I'm you you can. <laughs> but like that at a certain kind of like subliminal level the point that one of the points here is that a subliminal level every like we are glomming all these different moments of the phone of our experience together and we're we're, we're constructing in a very like in, without noticing without understanding without thinking this is not a conscious or willfully directed process we are our minds are constructing on in our experience in, certain, in a certain way that it seems as though the objects that we interact with remain the same moment by moment by moment by moment. Uh, so, and that's conceptualization too. That's important to understand. That is like the more subtle and, and in a sense more important form of conceptualization that's much, much harder to, to work around. The, the thing is, okay, so now I have said all this and maybe, you know, hopefully some percentage of people in the audience, you know, get this. Hopefully I get this at some level. You know, I'm not saying that I'm, I can understand it. I guess the point is here. I can understand this or maybe you can understand this in a certain kind of intellectual way. So then immediately, right, like our minds then do the next thing, which is to kick in and be like, okay, well, you're saying that reality is momentary, that all phenomena only exist, you know, they could only ever exist in a present moment, which is kind of, oh, as soon as you've said present moment, that's already passed, right? It's like that, that short. Okay, so then what? So then like, does that mean that there's like stuff 
that is like you know there's like a cause it's 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 in each moment it's the cause of the next moment which is the effect so cause exists for an instant and it causes the next moment which exists for an instant which is the effect of the previous moment and like that's you know like 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 mike would say it's not wrong you could say like it's not wrong i mean that is a better description than saying that you know reality is not momentary for sure you know you you, that's that's getting kind of closer to the thing However, and this is where Nagarjuna's point is, he says, if the first moment of the new state of being, if it were the kind of thing that were really produced when the last moment of the old state of being were ceasing, then what was ceasing would be one thing, what was being born would be another. In other words, if it were really true that the intrinsic inherent nature of the, of the present moment were one thing and such that it produced an, a next moment which had a completely different we would have to have i mean what other i mean think about that like what what else would it mean for something to be momentary other than for the next moment to have the nature being something that's different from the thing in the present moment it has to have it otherwise it wouldn't otherwise it'd be the same thing the problem is okay but then you're saying like well in the time that the thing that the cause exists i mean this again goes back to chapter one but maybe we can think about it a little different now or maybe i'm describing it in slightly different terms at the moment of the cause, the effect doesn't exist. At the moment of the effect, the cause doesn't exist. So what are you really talking about when you're talking about like a continuum of like, you know, the phone, like this, this thing that we're calling a phone that seems to exist moment by moment by moment by moment. Like if it really were the kind of thing that could, could we could have this description of reality as momentary in this kind of a way, like it just falls apart under its own weight. That doesn't, like it doesn't make any sense. Like what, what are you saying that the, the previous moment, you know, it, it, like it, 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 what kind of an ontological relationship does it have to the next moment as soon as you try to account for that if they're the same then you violated momentariness and you've also violated common sense because this you know the, the electrons in this thing are, are, are flowing nearly the speed of light instant by instant if you're saying that they're different then what kind of a relationship is it that they have to each other and 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 so the the, the point is that the danger the the error the mistake the the problem that we have is that we are telling this story about the object every uh, you know the, the 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 water bottle the 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 toilet whatever you know the computer anything like w- all the objects in our day-to-day lives you know we, we we interact with them we have certain kind of conventional interactions with them if we didn't we would starve you know we would we would die of thirst like we need to be able to say that's water that's food that's going to kill me that's going to make me you know feel pleasure whatever like th- if we didn't have that ability to a certain level you know it's important for survival but it's also misleading. It's also wrong in a certain way. And, and, and so the, the training consists at a certain level in being able to work our way through like, okay, well, we have these cognitive mechanisms from, you know, evolution over billions or whatever, you know, infinite time, so to speak, in, in beginning with samsara. Um, that's good. We, you know, it's good that we have these human bodies, that we have these human lives. And, but we we need to learn how to see reality clearly we need to learn how to see reality as it really is and reality as it really is escapes all of these kinds of concepts ym do you want to jump in because uh, i have something to say but i don't want to walk all over everybody i mean not really it's uh, i think dk put it better than i could it's not only that we yeah, don't step well, that man doesn't step in the same river twice, not only because the river is different, but because the man is not the same either. 
and DK already knows this, um, but just just for the sake of clarity, um, the, the the rubber really hits the road for all this kind of analysis. Not when we're talking about phones and water bottles and the stuff in the room, um, but with in, in interior phenomenon, if you want to call them that, um, which is which is why we meditate because we uh, ascribe the same sort of reality uh, that we do to objects and and things like that. We, we, we use that same process about our own um, internal lived experience. And when you sit in meditation, there's sort of a, an analogous ph uh, phenomenon um, that um, to what DK was saying about like, you know, you can very grossly look at the phone like, oh, this thing doesn't change. And then you could look more subtly and be like, oh, well, there's electrons moving around and they have little moments. But then look even more subtly in the way that Nagarjuna is um uh, explaining or, or more profoundly, maybe I should say, and you can see that even that breaks down. There's a similar process um, that goes on during meditation. It doesn't just have to be during meditation, but the reason we meditate is to is because it's it's very difficult to see. And so you you eliminate outside distractions, turn the gaze inward and observe what's going on in your own mind. And you're doing the same thing. So, you know, you can have very gross uh things like a flash of anger that that's overpowering um and then you can you know if you're meditating you can you can sit through that and then you can see how that it arises it passes away and then you can look more subtly and the next time you encounter that same sort of feeling you can sort of see that there's a, a little layer beneath that where it's about to arise but it hasn't arisen yet and then that sort of helps you to see through that gross flash of anger because you're like oh wait there's this other weird little trigger happening under there Huh, what's that thing? And if you sit long enough and quietly enough, and then when that arises again, you can maybe even see something beneath that. And all phenomenon can be can be viewed this way, or or it's, it's almost wrong to say that they can be viewed that way because the the viewing is what makes you realize that the phenomena themselves don't have any reality in and of themselves. Um, and that's you know for the causes of ultimate enlightenment enlightenment. Um, you want to take that all the way through to its possible its, its its conclusion, and I can't speak on that because I'm not ultimately enlightened. But even just for day to day living, it's it's like this super powerful thing um, to have at your disposal. Because then, when something like a gross flash of anger comes on, you already are equipped with this knowledge uh, that that doesn't have any intrinsic reality to itself and you're under no obligation whatsoever to identify with it to act upon it you're also under no obligation to throw it away if you don't want to you know you could use that flash of anger if you felt like it if you thought it was the right thing to do but you you're no longer a victim of it you're no longer a victim of your uh hypostatization of it that you're reifying of that um it just like you're gonna have a better time with objects like your phone and everything if you have a more subtle understanding of the way they work you know you don't you don't just smash the phone against the wall when it's not working the way you want to. You know, you might try a system reboot or try to, you know, f figure something else that's wrong with it. You can, I, this sounds kind of silly maybe, but you can do that sort of same kind of operation on yourself. Um, and maybe we're getting away from the text still too much, but it. No, no, I think, I think that, that's, I don't think so at all. I think this is. that. The... That's ultimately what we're getting at in Buddhism. And that's ultimately the, re the reason that Nagarjuna is is pointing out all of these fallacies, not so that we can see our phones better, although the Buddha could do that too, but really so that we can see ourselves better. Yeah, very well put, very well put. Um, 
speak speaking uh, speaking of the buddha uh like that so there's a kind of a um a cute game that you know a certain kind of um intellectually minded person uh, not just intellectually minded but also like you know cheeky in a certain way would like to play then right with all of this kind of analysis um which is okay mr nagarjuna mr buddhist guy you're saying like all these all these things are empty right you're saying all these things are you can't really like point at them they're not really real you think we think of them as real but they're not really real but you're a buddhist right so you think buddhism is real you think the buddha is real right i mean you isn't that you know and the guard and this is this is going to come up again uh next episode in a more profound way there's some really 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 famous and important verses coming up but um you know that's all contained here really and and he says you know he says in the in the first verse of the next chapter he says that the tagata which is another word for the buddha the thus gone one the one who is gone like that gone there he's gone there he went there um <clears throat> the tagata is neither identical with the skandhas nor distinct from the skandhas the skandhas are not in him nor is he in them he does not exist possessing the skandhas what tagata then is there Skandas to review for those of you out in whatever Rio Ganges are are uh, are uh, the the five aggregates the 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 basically the 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 mind the, the 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 collection of cognitive stuff and the collection of physical stuff that comprise our continuum as a sentient being, um, and he's saying, well yeah the the buddha you know we, we we can talk it's 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 not just for phones right this analysis is not just for phones and it's not just for us and it's not just for ordinary stuff it is also like yeah you can we can and should and must in fact do this kind of analysis to everything and anything and so when you have this idea of like this this is like the, the saying you know oh it's kind of over said but it, it's a kind of funny and cute and, and in its own way important saying you know if you meet the buddha in the road kill him the not suggesting like buddha side that don't do that that's one of the five worst things you could possibly do uh don't literally kill a buddha if you see a buddha in the road um but what is the point of that <clears throat> what is the point of that maxim right what is the point of that saying the point of that saying is like okay you have this idea in your head of like a Buddha and you think of it as this, uh, you know, completely transcendent thing that like, you know, um, it's just completely, you know, that, that, that it's, it's you, whatever kind of superlatives you want to heap up on it. That's what you think of as a Buddha again, not wrong and important to understand. It's, he's not saying that that's wrong. What he said with that, what that Maxim is saying, what Nagarjuna in a sense is saying here is your idea of the Buddha is not Buddha, right? Like whatever concept you have. So if you, if you think that you found the thing, like keep, keep looking, right. Or better yet, stop looking like that. It's not, if you, if you look for the Buddha, here's my, here's DK's version of if you, if you meet the Buddha in the road, kill him. If you think you found the Buddha, stop looking because you haven't found him. But it, as long as you're looking, I've, I've had it better and more pithily in my mind. And then I lost it as I was talking, which is its own kind of point. But the point is this, if you, <laughs> if, if you, if you like, it, it's in the it's in not looking for the buddha that you find the buddha it's in it's in stopping all that kind of mental activity that you achieve 
the thing you're you're the point that that kind of particular kind of mental activity you think is going to 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 get to and so yeah when he's saying like when the tathagata you know what tathagata is there he's not saying there is no buddha and therefore buddhism is dumb and therefore go do whatever he's saying like the idea that you have in your mind of the buddha like that can be helpful to a certain extent like the concepts like any other concept you know you need concepts when you're in a certain thing but there's another there's a very famous story i think we've said it before on this show but I'll, I'll say it again of the raft the metaphor of the raft this is like a, one of the oldest and most important buddhist teachings really kind of one of the core teachings is you know the i, I didn't even remember the context but basically the disciple you know his, his his students his disciples were asking the buddha uh what is uh you know, you've said all this stuff, like, how are we supposed to, you know, I don't understand. And, and, you know, like you, how, what are we supposed to do with like, you teach one thing and then the next day you teach something else. And it seems like I don't get it. And he says, when you cross a river, do you take, like you cross a river on a raft. Okay. Do you then take the raft on your back and walk with it on the shore? <laughs> the people are like, no, he's like, okay. So all this stuff that I'm teaching you, right. It's like the raft. You need it to cross the river, but once you're on the other side, like you, you would be dumb to keep clinging to it. You got to let it go back on the river shore, back where it belongs, because you, now you're on the other side. You don't need it. It's, it's in fact, act, it would be actively harmful to keep dragging it along with you. And, and, and so that's the point here is he's, he's not saying there is no Buddha and there's no such thing as enlightenment and physical. This is this is one of the kind of verses. This is kind of one of the kind of points where where these uh atheist types these Stephen bachelor types we've talked about before you know in Cal somewhat with the california dharma but it's a little bit of a different thing it's it's more like the atheist you know i'm going to take buddhism as quote-unquote philosophy and and ignore all this quote-unquote supernatural stuff i don't like versus like you know let's have mindful orgies and and watch porn mindfully kind of thing um it's a slightly different thing uh this is one of the kinds of things that they love to latch onto because it seems like if you're dumb, <laughs> they're not really paying close enough attention that maybe Nagarjuna is saying like, oh, okay, well, there is no Buddha. You know, the Buddha's inside you all along. And and again, you don't want to say like, yeah, that's true to a certain extent in a certain way, kind of, but like you've got to understand. E even that is like what, what, what people who do that fail to understand is that they're then just reifying another layer of idea. They just kicked it back up another layer instead of stopping the process entirely cutting it off at the root i did the classic uh podcaster thing where i was um i was like yeah blah, 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 and, uh, but i was muted the whole time and then i was like wow, sorry bro can you can, can you can you do can you <laughs> you know the thing you're the thing about the rafting it, it it i just it's funny because i was going to bring up the same metaphor and um since you mentioned the stephen bachelor crowd uh, or that that side of things uh, I would I would just like to point out that there's much more to the metaphor of the raft than just uh, you abandon it when you get to the other side, because first you have to construct the raft, right? So the Buddha is helping us to construct the raft of the reeds and the, the branches and the things that we find on one side of the river, which st can stand in for the skandhas, right? That's what we have to work with. We're not enlightened beings. We have our skandhas. We have our form, feeling, perception, et cetera, uh, which are which are delusions on one level, but it's all we have to work with. So you build a raft, you build a conveyance using that, you, that's the meditation and you and the Dharma, the teaching, and you use it to cross the river to the other side. You don't abandon the raft midstream, right? You don't, <laughs> because you're not to the other side yet, right? Uh, and then if you get to the other side, then it's true. The raft was just a conveyance. It wasn't the point. 
uh, and to cling to the raft would be stupid because you don't need it anymore. And so clinging to the idea of the Tathagata, clinging to the idea of the Dharma and everything, ultimately these are to be abandoned too. But the, uh, the, the California Dharma types often will sort of use this metaphor as like uh, a, a way of saying like, like, yeah, you could you could you could say that they're on the near side of the river. Uh, they haven't crossed it yet, uh, and they have the raft. They're like, "Well, I don't even need this raft." And they just toss it aside. And they're like, "I'm enlightened," and they're still sitting there, like in total unenlightenment of darkness. Or they never even bothered to start trying to build the raft. Or or they got a little way across the river, and they're like, "I don't need this raft because I'm so enlightened." And Buddha says, "I don't need it." Uh, it's just a pet peeve of mine. Yeah. Once you're fully enlightened, yeah, then you, the last step is to drop the raft. It actually is really ironic in a way when when they when they would cling to this kind of metaphor of the raft as a justification for secular dharma. I mean, when when you consider that emptiness is basically a thing to dispel metaphysical views, and what Stephen Batchelor is essentially trying to do is take Buddhist philosophy and then beat it into agreeing with scientific materialist metaphysics. So it's it's like yeah, pretty it's much well, the it's like using, of what using the raft to like I don't know like. Stay on, you know, like I mean, sitting on the raft on the on the, on the shore and like paddling around in the mud or something. Anyway, sorry. I mean, he's, he's just like walking into it with this pre-existing metaphysical view of um, basically scientific materialism and saying, "Okay, we're going to force Buddhism to agree with this, and so let's pick and choose what allows me to hold on to this worldview." Yep. Yeah, you can see the uh, DK. You can see the roots of uh, the the Zen. Uh, you know, famously, Zen is. Uh, now you have to correct me with how I'm wrong here, but um, you know, obviously, it's a Mahayana school, and it's uh, very heavily influenced, at least in some sectors, um, by the by the Tibetan uh, teaching. A am I correct on that? You're, you're asking if Zen up. is influenced by Tibetan teaching. I don't know. Zen is uh, Zen is the Chi Japanese transliteration. I mean, I, I okay, yeah, yeah. No, I, know, I know it's birth root. out of China and everything, but I'm I'm just yeah, yeah. I, I no, it's it's earlier. Chan Chan is uh, I don't actually I'm not all super up on this, but but Chan developed around the time that Buddhism was first moving into Tibet, and there was some cross pollination, especially in the early period from like around 700 to around 900. It's a kind of very interesting period that historians and these kind of people are, are interested in. I don't, I don't know much about it, but I do know that like there, there's a very famous um, site called Dunhuang. When like people who are into this stuff will heard of like the Dunhuang manuscripts. It's kind of like the Dead Sea Scrolls of, of South of like, like Tibetan and Chinese Buddhism. It, it was this random, it was like the, all these scrolls that got deposited and then forgotten about. And then they were discovered. Um, I don't know, sometime in not that long ago. And so it's a kind of interesting, like people who are into that can see like what Buddhism looked like in that period. And, and it's, it seems like there was more contact between Tibetan and Chinese Buddhists, at least in that place and time then we really understood, but I, I, I'm not an expert on any of that. I guess um, so. Without the without history to back me up on it, I'll just make an assertion then, which is that I feel I can I can see some of the spirit in Zen, um, and of course the the you know the phrase "if you meet the Buddha, kill the Buddha" is a is a very Zen um, type of thing to say. But I can I can see the affinity 
between these last several chapters in Nagarjuna and the spirit, if you will. Um, yeah, well, I see that's all in the perfection. That's what I'm saying. That's like, guy. that's all the perfection of wisdom stuff. Like that's all coming. I mean, I think there's a, right, right. there's a tendency. We've talked a little bit about this, but maybe for people to refresh their memories, the, um, the dividing line between the Mahayana and the non-Mahayana, or what you could call like mainstream Buddhism or original Buddhism, Theravada. Theravada is not the greatest word for what I'm talking about. I mean, the, the, that is the representative today of that tradition. But, it, it, you know, anyway, it doesn't matter. Point is, um, historically, like the big thing that changed was you, you got the Mahayana, like the, there was this class of, we had the old sutras, the old like discourses of the Buddha, where usually the Buddha would talk, deliver a lesson, and the monks would listen. Sometimes it was someone else. And then you get these Maha, these these sutras that were calling themselves Mahayana sutras, um, and and the the kind of like the real defining one was the perfection of what they called themselves the perfection of wisdom, which like real it's all contained in the Heart Sutra, and and we'll we'll maybe do an episode on that at some point or, or maybe this would be a good I mean in a way this is what this is all about I mean Nagarjuna like that's just condensed Nagarjuna so it'll be good to maybe do that having done Nagarjuna but it's all like yeah like you know. Basically, you know, form is empty of form, emptiness is empty of emptiness, the Buddha is empty of Buddha, and, and this kind of stuff. And and that kind of understanding of what it means to be, you know, what, this, this, this rhetoric of emptiness is at the heart of Mahayana Buddhism. And that's true for every Mahayana tradition. That's true for Yogacara as well. It just kind of gets whatever they, they, they talk about it in, in certain different ways. Um, it's more of a kind of meditative emphasis in a certain sense. But... Um, that's what when we're talking about like the the you know if you meet the buddha kill the buddha that's really what that's saying is buddha is empty of buddha that's another way of like putting it and um just maybe a little bit more kind of like it's, it's jarring you out of your complacency of thinking about you know like you it's one thing to say buddha is empty of buddha for a certain kind of person a certain kind of maybe very philosophically minded person um that would be very jarring maybe more jarring than if you know if you meet the buddha kill the buddha for like 99 percent of people or more you know if you meet the buddha kill the buddha is like it, it has a visceral impact in a way that the philosophical statement might not do you want to queue up uh the next chapter and i'll just read off a couple of these uh, comments here uh yeah well i uh why don't you just read the comments first okay uh yeah buddha linkola says uh where is storm king miss him tbh Yes. Uh, so do we. Ayalin Sigurthart daughter says uh, Shingon is the Japanese sect inspired by Tibetan Vajrayana. As far not as I know, Tibetan, I not, not Tibetan Vajrayana no. specifically. It, it is Vajrayana, but like to, the it, lineage it, is separate. Uh, yeah. The founder of Shingon, Kobo Daishi, received uh, the texts that were the basis of Shingon from a couple of monks from originally from Afghanistan, if I recall correctly, who had. Uh, moved to China after the Muslims were destroying everything there. And that's where that came from. The Tibetan tradition came pretty much directly from India. So it's the same overall Vajrayana tradition, but from a different lineage. They also, so they got it from a, they got it earlier. They got it an earlier, it's a whole, that, I, I do know a little bit about this. Um, my understanding is, so in, in Tibetan Vajrayana and Tibetan Tantric Buddhism, there's like, Basically, they have the whole history of Indian tantric Buddhism all the way up until the Muslims came and killed everyone, which includes a lot of later developments, um, specifically stuff that you could call like uh, tantric yoga, like like psychosexual practices and things like that, and and certain other kinds of um, 
advanced meditation. The Shingon stuff is entirely with, within what the Tibetan tradition would call Maha Yoga, which is a certain kind of, it, it's mostly like in, in for people in Tibet stuff, it's associated with a Guya Samaja Tantra type material of like, you are the central deity. You visual, it's basically like a, a, a royal metaphor of like, there's a king who's the deity who's surrounded by a retinue and blah, blah, blah. Like that's the kind of, that it's, it's, it's like kind of Tantric Buddhism 101. Um, not in the sense of being less important or less profound or, I and mean, it's entirely, it, it's a different approach. It's a different approach than like, you know, all the kind of subtle body stuff. Um, but that all that subtle body stuff happened late, like as a historical matter. Um, you start seeing those kind of texts and practices develop somewhat later in India. And the, the tantric Buddhism that they got in Japan, it moved to Japan before those developments happened for the most part. Cool. Um, Vinami says, it is popular to water down enlightenment and even attainment of meditative states in American teachers. I suppose they think, hey, I've been practicing for decades, so surely I have these attainments. In fact, it might be better to step back and question if the practice is done properly, has been done properly. Uh, excellent. Uh, excellent it, comment. It's totally sad, agree. but you do see occasionally. It, it's, I don't know about, I, I can't That's, speak to like hmm. so-called teacher. I mean, I you know my thing that I... Like I, you know, I'm plugged into, uh, I'm not plugged into those like modernist Westerner secular type things. So I can't really speak to them. I have met people who, you know, they've been practicing for years or they did a, you know, three year retreat or multiple three year retreats and it didn't seem to do them much good. And that's really sad. <laughs> Maybe not in this lifetime, but I, it's, you know, who knows what'll happen in the future. Um, uh, just, I just read a couple. Uh, Tom Colbert says, I knew one Tibet monk. He loved Chick-fil-A. Based. Um, that's it. That's <laughs> it for now. And hello, Will. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So the the last chapter that I wanted to discuss today, and, and this is sort of like just another, you know, again, we're examining the same thing from, from lots of different aspects. But this is, I think, is a little bit different maybe than, than what we've seen so far. He says in, in verse one of uh, chapter 23, he says, desire, aversion. I'm actually just gonna keep, I'm gonna read a couple of verses all the way through because I think it's not that hard to understand and, and it's, it'll be helpful and then people will, and then we can maybe talk about it for a bit. But he says, desire, aversion, and delusion. So the three point, the three, like from a basic Buddhist perspective, the things that we're supposed to be on the lookout for. We could even say lust, hatred, and, and stupidity is maybe a little bit more kind of getting at what that's about. Are said to arise from false discrimination. These arise in dependence on the good, the bad, and false conception. What arise in dependence on the good, the bad, and false conception, those things do not exist intrinsically for all the reasons we've, you know, as we said, that nothing exists intrinsically. We've proven that. Therefore, the defilements are not ultimately real. If, if the object of lust and the object of hatred do not exist, then lust and hatred, how could lust and hatred exist? Neither the existence nor the non-existence of the self is in any way established. So we can't, you know, to say the self exists, that's obviously wrong. To say the self does not exist, like what would that even mean, as we've analyzed in the past? Without that establishment, 
how will there be the establishment of the existence or the non-existence of the defilements? So these defilements belong to something, yet no such thing is established. Without something to be their locus, the defilements are defilements of nothing whatsoever. If we can't establish that, you know, lust and hatred and stupidity, like, really exists, then who is it that can have, who can be lustful or, or hate-filled? Uh, the good, the bad, and false conception do not occur intrinsically. Independence on what good, bad, and false conception will there be defilements? Uh, yeah, so that's where I, we can pause there for now and, and discuss. But but I mean, I, I I think this is something really worth considering. Um, what, what do you guys? Uh, what do you all have to say? Well, um, uh, it reminds me not to keep bringing back to Zen, but I mean, it reminds me so much of the poem, the famous poem of the sixth patriarch of Chan Buddhism in, in China, Hui Neng, um, who famously was, uh, we've discussed this on the show before, uh, many months ago uh, with Storm King. Uh, the, the, uh, one of the, the abbot made a poetry competition, who, who, can, um, who can write the best poem on the Dharma, I suppose. And uh, one of the monks, one of the learned monks wrote a poem, I don't have it in front of me, but something along the lines of, tirelessly I wipe the dust from the surface of the mirror so that it can reflect clearly. Uh, meaning, you know, I, I remove the defilements from the mind, right? So that my mind will uh, reflect uh, true Buddha nature. And Hui Nung, who I think was the cook or the janitor or something like that, he uh, heard the poem and he wrote his own version, um, which was, um, that, you know, again, I don't have it in front of me, something very poetic in ancient Chinese, I'm sure, but, uh, or medieval Chinese. But uh, something along the lines of um, there is no mirror, there's no mirror stand, so where can the dust alight, right? So that's that's what Nagarjuna is getting at here, right? Yes, exactly, uh, thinking, 100%. Yeah. There, 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 there's no place for the defilements to be. There's, there are no defilements. There's, there's nothing to defile. So <laughs> what are you even talking about? Right. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's tough because, like, this is the kind of thing that can get people in trouble. You're like, oh, you mean there's no such thing as defilement? There's no difference, you know, between what's defiled and what's undefiled? Well, yeah, in ultimate terms, at a certain level, it's like, okay, so then I can do whatever I want. It's like, no, 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 you misunderstood. That's not what we're, that's not the point here. I don't know, I don't, I highly doubt anyone in this audience is, is like going to take that mistaken people who no, but i mean it's a good it's an interesting intellectual question though like but 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 then but then what why why you know using reasoning like why isn't that the case specifically well again it is but the question is like what is your the question really is is your experience like are pleasure and pain the same to you are you do you have right does the one does do when you talk about okay one there's one taste of phenomena all phenomena have the same taste one taste right which is something that they said sometimes uh, in in tibetan okay well what does that mean like that means that whatever appears in in in, in its real nature and its true nature is the exact same as anything else that appears is that your experience do blue and yellow seem different to you do pleasure and pain seem different to you <laughs> if they do then that means that's not that's not one taste. You're not at one taste yet. And so, like, when you say, like, okay, there's no defilement, there's no undefilement, like, 
it means you know as, as long as these things are appearing different to you as long as like you know you seem to, like it seems like there's pleasure and it's different from pain and you want ple- you want to get pleasure and you want to avoid pain all of which is perfectly like again we're at a certain level w- what this is about is like you know how do we get the sublime happiness to end all happiness that, that we never have to suffer again right that i'm not saying there's something wrong with wanting to avoid suffering quite the opposite it, it's just a question of like when you're talking at this level of you know in ultimate terms of you know there's no ultimate difference when you you look for the nature of defilement and you look for the nature of you know what's undefiled and you 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 can't find a real nature of something that's defiled and you can't find a real nature of something that's undefiled and therefore in some sense which is true there is no difference between what's defiled and what's undefiled like rationally speaking you know when we're doing this kind of analysis that's true but like that analysis is supposed to help you to understand like you know to put it maybe in a certain kind of christian language like you can if you think of it as like works versus grace kind of like you do all the good works you want it at a certain it's not that it's not that it's not important it's not that it's not necessary it's that it's insufficient it's that it's that like it's not about like how many good works do you do it, it's you know because at a certain you could maybe kick this back a notch and say like at a certain level if you are doing good work if you have this idea in your mind of like okay well i am defiled and i need to purify my mind and therefore i'm going to do all this stuff to purify my mind i'm going to you know blah blah, blah whatever yes that's good i'm not saying don't do that i'm saying like you know, at a certain level, um, this is what Chögyam Trungpa, I think, calls um, spiritual materialism, is it becomes a kind of like, it essentially becomes a, just a different kind of ego trip, a better ego trip in, in a certain sense, like one that's less harmful for sure than like just, you know, checking out and doing drugs and whatever. Um, but it's still an ego trip. It's still coming out of like, I have a sense of myself as someone who wants to do something or accomplish something and there's like that there's that little tail of ego there right there's that little sense of like i'm going for the glory or for myself you know for whatever and and that prevents us that like that ego involvement prevents us from really benefiting in the most profound possible way which is like really letting go of this sense of like you know and that that's the hardest thing and it's not to say that we you know i i i'm i'm i fully admit like you know i I went through a period where i would just be uh, i wouldn't quite say ostentatious but i would go out of my way to like try to do what i thought a bodhisattva would do and for the most part like it was you know pretty successful then i reached a point i was like you know uh like i don't know how to say like it it was just sort of like there's too much of my ego in this there's too much of like you know, I'm, it's not that I'm doing this because out of some sense of reward. It's like I have my 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 sense of a self, my sense of identity is, is wrapped up in this. Now I'm at a point where, like, I wouldn't say that I ostentatiously don't do stuff so much as um, I'm just lazy. I've allowed I have allowed my sort of like highfalutin philosophical understanding to get in the way of my diligence, such that I now like my problem is you know like oh it doesn't matter if I do this thing or not. And, and it becomes an excuse to be lazy in a certain way. So these temptations are real. And and it's not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this because I, I all, first of all, to deflate, you know, myself and, and to try to be real with you, but also just to say, like, you know, it, it's not an either or, and it's not an all or nothing. It's, it's just like, you know, we have 
all of these different things going our minds are very especially as like modern you know people in living in the contemporary west who are brought under the brought up under this system like our minds are so complicated we have all these extremely sophisticated strategies you know to 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 play these games with ourselves and others and um you know we got to cut through it it that that's it's as simple as that I lost the. I'm sorry. I talk, started talking about one thing and started ended up talking about something completely different. Where were we? <laughs> no, it's okay. It was. It was. Uh, it was. It was interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's um, the path consists of virtue, concentration, and discernment, and it's. I like to remind myself of that often because, um, you know, you can get these sort of gr- grotesque versions of. Uh, these caricatures of what Buddhism is like, if you focus on one at the, um, at the, to the detriment of the others. So I think in the West a lot, we get um, the picture of uh, Buddhism as just the concentration part, right? Just the sitting um, on your butt on a cushion, staring at the wall for your entire life, right? That very sort of that, that image of, of Buddhist as, as, you know, people that just sit there and do nothing but meditate. That's uh thinking too much on the concentration side um the discernment side also i think um you know when people get cute with the with yeah with you know interpreting texts like um like this nagarjuna or like you know some of the more pithy zen sayings or some of the you know metaphors from the actual teaching of the buddha and they you know they they think oh isn't it isn't it how clever i figured out that that you know that, that there is no there's no mirror and therefore i can do anything i want right that's just saying First of all, that's not really discernment, of course, but, um, you know, it's it's like an, a, a, a play acting, you know, it's like a, an ape putting on lipstick version of <laughs> of discernment. And then there's the virtue, there's the virtue side, which I don't think it's a lot of play in the West, unfortunately. But, you know, we've done sev- several, at least a few shows on on the that side of things, you know, morality and Buddhism. Um, and that that is very key. And I think that any advanced teacher, at least any advanced teacher that I can think of that I've listened to, um, will say, you know, that the three go hand in hand in hand. And it ultimately, they, they don't contradict one another. And ultimately, they, no one really precedes the other one. But conventionally, um, in a lot of the teachings, um, it's understood in that order, virtue, concentration, and discernment, in the sense that Virtue allows you to clear your karmic stream enough so that you can actually achieve concentration and not be beset on all sides by your regrets and by your enemies and by your own anger and your own lust and everything, right? You calm those things down through virtuous behavior, allowing you to reach concentration. And through concentration, you can reach true discernment. Um, so it's not the same, you know, entering jhana, states of jhana is not actually the point, right? The states of jhana are there so that you can you know, reach real discernment, real enlightenment on these issues. So I, I know that phenomenon you're talking about, um, and I've totally been guilty of it myself. I've been guilty of all three of those, <laughs> of those. Uh, yeah, I mean, you cycle it. Oh. It's just a, sorry, go on. Uh, why am? Oh, um, I, if I, I guess, or if you wanted to finish first or. No, no, please jump in. Okay. Well, you know, I mean, it seems that with, at least with, when it comes to just, right action ethics in general among Western Buddhists. I think with the California Dharma type people, there's a tendency to read the very real, like there's um, the tendency within Buddhism towards a kind of flexible sense of ethics into just ignoring it entirely and focusing entirely on the concentration bit so they can continue to do basically whatever they want. 
And the thing is, I mean, while you know, this analysis here on an ultimate level, maybe we could say one thing, it is ultimately necessary to consider ethics as part of the overall um, path to get the result that we're trying to get here. So it can't be dismissed entirely. And that's something that I think gets uh, overlooked a lot, unfortunately. Yeah, yes it does. Tom uh, Colbert asked a tough question, and I, I don't want to go all the way down this uh, rabbit hole because it's a whole episode in of itself. And we have actually addressed it before, but um, he said, please tell us uh, about the Buddhist attitude towards killing other than murder, which is obviously wrong. And I would give my short version, DK, if you want to jump in after. Please, I, no, I please, would just yeah. say that the, 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 problem with, um, the problem with immoral behavior ultimately in Buddhism, in all cases, wh wh whatever kind of immoral behavior it has, is that inc it incurs karmic debts um, as, a, as a feature of just the way the universe, the way the universe works. Um, and killing could be sometimes justified, um, but you probably don't understand, not you, Tom, but you as a human being, um, probably do not understand the ramifications of killing, and so it is to be avoided if at all possible. Killing is an extremely big karmic debt, um, and yeah. it's supposed to be avoided. But it's not... It's not that it's immoral in and of itself and can never be justified. So the the technical term for... So first of all, yeah, that's a great point. And everything Aura just said, the only thing I want to add and it, uh, is, well, I guess, two things. But the more important one is, um, first of all, that there is no distinction between killing and murder, really, in Buddhism. It, that, that, like, killing is... Mur I mean, maybe, I don't know, even really... I mean, it's an interesting kind of philosophical question. But the, the technical term in Buddhist ethical analysis is is basically you're, you're cutting the continuum or you're cutting the lifespan like beings, you know, that we sort of discussed before, like, like, you know, we have a psychophysical continuum. We have a, our, our, from, you know, our, our, our minds and our bodies are sort of feeding off each other and conditioning each other at every moment. And until we die, at which point our, you know, body continuum stops and our mind continuum goes on. But there's like a, there's a, like a, is an inherent kind of um, force you could say to our lifespan being a certain length or whatever, and um, killing is the the act of deliberately shortening that, right? And that is not to be distinguished really from murder. The um, the, the the thing is like not all killing is the same. So even from a Buddhist perspective, like there's no difference in terms of if you kill a cow versus you kill a human. Um, you know, in both cases, you're talking, or you kill an insect, whatever, a fly. Um, you know, there's no difference in terms of what are you doing. Well, there's a sentient being that has a certain, you know, there's a force, there's a life force that they have that would would keep them alive for a certain amount of time, and you are cutting the continuum of their life force, right? And that's that's the, equally the case whether you're talking about a a mosquito or a cow or a human. The difference is that. Um, yeah, at a certain level, the karmic consequences are not like human beings because, you know, especially human beings who have the freedoms and advantages. Um, we've talked about a little before, but basically it means um, you, you have the ability to understand the Dharma and therefore to advance on the path and be, to enlightenment and become a Buddha and really benefit beings in a profound way. Um, humans are the it's taught the 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 the. Um, it's the best possible platform in all of samsara in the entire multiverse like 
this is this is the best kind of birth that you could get because it's the most effective it's the it's the it's the best way that you could like it's the best platform for reaching enlightenment so killing a human being who you know with the right kind of orientation and education and so on could learn the dharma and advance on the path towards buddhahood that's much worse than just killing a random mosquito doesn't mean it's okay to kill mosquitoes just means the consequences aren't quite the same so yeah the the other thing to add to that is just like there's a there's a very famous story about captain compassion and you know uh, we can talk about it another time and there's there's certain circumstances like one of the things that distinguishes mahayana buddhist ethics from like quote-unquote mainstream or whatever theravada buddhist ethics is the mahayana and in particular tantric tradition is a little bit more ambivalent about like yeah sometimes you can kill and it's okay (laughs) um but it, 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 that, that really comes down to motivation and like, do you have compassion for the person you're killing? Is it really out of a deeply felt sense of like, you're stopping them from acute, like you understand that by killing them, you're doing something wrong, but that you're in doing this wrong thing, you're saving them from doing things that are much worse. Kind of like, you know, you get the, it's hard for a Kantian at a certain level, as I understand it to, um, or certain kinds of people operating under certain kinds of ethical theories like a dude has it's just a, hard for a kantian well that too but but you know, a dude has a finger on a button that'll nuke the entire planet right like can you kill him ethically or not and like some kinds of ethical theories including i believe kantian type ethical theories you know it's a real problem to say like that it's okay to kill this guy who's going to nuke the entire planet whereas from a mahayana buddhist perspective it's like no you fucking kill that dude what the fuck is wrong with just fucking kill him just do it like so so that's that's the that's the difference but that's again like is that even really a real you know how often do those kind of scenarios even come up and is that the same as like you know when 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 you just want to eat meat for example you know no it's not the same um we we can uh i just wanted to round out maybe this um if we were if we were good with that guys just to finish this there was one last like point i wanted to make in this in this chapter Um, so, so then he goes somewhere really interesting. So the opponent says in verse seven concerning desire, aversion, and delusion, I, I prefer cause whatever lust, hatred, and, and stupidity, there is constructed six kinds of objects taken as real color, sound, touch, taste, smell, and the object of inner sense. So in other words, he's saying like, okay, well, when you're saying like Nagarjuna, you have argued that the uh, these 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 qualities, these these affective states, you know, these defilements of, of lust and and, and um, hatred and so on, they're not really real. But like, you know, there's a world of objects. There's a world of of iPhones and airplanes and and uh you know houses and women and well women aren't real but the you take my point that that there are these um there's a world of objects out there these are the objects of our senses and this is what gives rise to aversion uh, as the commentators are say it is on the basis of our experience in these six modalities that we construct objects things that have color taste and so on and these objects are what we take 
to be pleasant or unpleasant, and about which we have false conceptions. Our taking some object to be pleasant is what gives rise to desire. Our taking something to be unpleasant is what gives rise to aversion. Our falsely conceiving something, as for in instance enduring, is what gives rise to delusion. So the three defilements of arise out of our experience of colors, tastes, and so on. The implication is that good, bad, and false conception must, after all, exist. And Nagarjuna replies, They are only colors, sounds, tastes, touches, smells, and objects of inner sense, similar to the city of the Gandharvas, like a mirage, a dream. And we, he already mentioned this city of the Gandharvas in, in chapter 7. We've covered that, I believe, but the, it's, a, it's a metaphor to like these invisible sky beings, um, the mythological creatures that exist. I mean, the Gandharvas is not, you know, the Gandharvas, I mean, it's kind of like whatever, you know, unicorns or something in, in um, Greek uh, mythology. It's not, it's not something that doesn't exist at all, but it is um, something that is like just beyond, you know, it's not really real either. I mean, it kind of is saying that they aren't, they don't exist. But the point is to say that the six sense objects are only color and so on is to say that they are empty or devoid of intrinsic nature. They are thus things that only appear to be ultimately real as an illusion only appears to be substantial. That's from the commentary as well. So, how you know when he goes on how will their determination as either bad or good come to be when they are like the image of an illusory person and the same as a reflection independent of the good there is no bad the bad being that depending on which we conceive of the good therefore the good itself cannot be you know yes you can say whoa everything is relative it's like yeah it is that doesn't mean you don't have to pay that doesn't mean there's like the fact that good and bad are constructed and rel you know it's like saying it's like the 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 the, the cop out that they do with the uh the the you know everything is socially constructed it's like yeah well i mean okay but you know that doesn't mean that you you could say everything is socially constructed or certain things are socially constructed you know we can even kind of agree on that to a certain extent where we where that doesn't mean they don't have real effects that doesn't mean they aren't important that doesn't mean that you know, it doesn't mean any, a lot of things. It, 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 it just, yes, we can sort of break things well, down. Yeah. In a certain, please. We live in a relativistic universe, uh, according to physics, right? And uh, there is no real up or down, right? But if you jump off of a building, you're going to hit the ground and die. So the, the, the things can operationally be, be functional, even though um, on a profound level, they're quote unquote relative. Exactly. That's way off topic. No, I think that's exactly right. Um, so yeah, that was that was kind of all I had on. I just wanted to throw that. There was one last little bit um, on that. Uh, yeah, no, it's good because the next time we do this, we're gonna we're gonna hammer through the the rest of uh, the end of this text. Yeah, and and that's where he he sort of like you know he he um, puts um, the. He, he gets the closest in some in a certain way to, to to sort of saying you know what putting in language things that aren't maybe able to be put in language ultimately but it's, it's very much along these lines i have to say uh uh tom colbert who asked the question earlier about killing has a great great little vignette that maybe we can edit here he says i know a green beret in the vietnam war asked a monk what is buddhism the monk replies respect for all life the green beret said even charlie the monk replied, kill Charlie, but respect him. <laughs> yes. Basically, yes. yes that. Awesome. Yes, that is correct. <laughs> that is correct. Uh, 
that is the attitude yes um yeah so with that um i apologize for uh, technical difficulties uh i hope it wasn't too jarring i'll have to do some editing and post but that's all right and um yeah any uh, as always we i think we got to pretty much everyone who had questions or comments today in the chat but as always we we remain very um you know we're happy to field whatever from from our audience uh again we have a also now a telegram channel to like, discuss these things in a, in a group discussion type setting um other than that was there anything you guys wanted to add do you have any closing thoughts on this chapter or this these material as a whole or anything else i've got nothing no it's no, uh, thanks. I, I would just say always thanks everybody listening. And yeah, never, never he hesitate to hit us up. Um, Telegram, Twitter, whatever is easy for you. Cool. All right. Well, with that, we uh, have this has been Red Wing Drummer Squad, episode 40, and we will catch you next time. <laughs>